I've mentioned before, but not to our visitors, that I grew up in a non-Bible teaching church. And that's not to say that there weren't Christians in the church, because there indeed were. But it's just that the mission of the Methodist church back when I was young and attending there was not biblical fidelity, but instead what we now call the social gospel. Not that I knew back then what that was. This was at the beginning of the God is love movement. And I'm, I guess we're still in that movement because an awful lot of churches say that, you know, God is love. And that is all God is to them. God is not Lord. And God is not Master. Uh, Jesus is not Savior. God is only love. Christianity was nothing but a feeling, an emotion. And maybe that's why when I finally did become a Christian, I had a low tolerance for, if not a non-existence tolerance for, religious hucksters. Those people who are selling Christianity for one reason or another. People have been in the business of selling Christianity from the very beginning. A little further along in Acts chapter 8 to be exact, we have the example of Simon Magus, as he's called, Simon the Magician. And Acts 8 says, verse 9, But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city, and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And pay attention to somebody who says that he is somebody great. And pay attention to Christians or people in the Christian world who say that they are something great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, He offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, The intent of your heart may be forgiven, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Simon was in Christianity for the money. 
to be called great. How many people have we seen like that just in the last 200 years alone? Uh, William Miller, back in the 1830s, started what is called the Millerite movement. And he was one of the first people in modern Christianity to preach that the Lord was returning, that material possessions were not necessary, and he had his people dressed in white robes. And at one time, and I think it was in 1839, they all gathered on a hillside in their white robes after giving away their houses and all their possessions to await the Lord coming down to take them to his kingdom. And just to jump ahead in case you're interested, that didn't happen. He was later one of the founders of the Adventist movement. Was he in for the money or the fame? And does it matter? How about Joseph Smith? And you all probably know who Joseph Smith is, the founder of Mormonism. Same thing. Money, fame, with, with Joseph Smith it was lust. Then there's Mary Baker Eddy, the prophetess of Christian science, which someone once pointed out was neither Christian nor scientific. What was she doing this for? Why did she start this offshoot? Was it, was it for fame? Was it for stature? Probably, we don't really know the answers. Charles Taze Russell, the founder of Jehovah's Witnesses, of whom some wag once said, and that was me, how can you be a witness when you haven't seen anything? Again, what was he looking for? Jeremiah 29.13 says, You shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7.7, Jesus himself says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? The promise from God is that if you seek him, you will find him. So why did William Miller or Joseph Smith, or Mary Baker Eddy, or Charles Taze Russell, not find God, because I assure you, they did not find God. The only answer can be that they weren't searching for something else. They were not searching for God. Their show of searching for God was just to hide their real desire. Money, fame, lust, stature... If you run across anyone like them, just keep one Bible verse in mind. It's Galatians uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. And it's Paul speaking to the Galatians. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And then he says, but even if... We, or an angel from heaven, he's talking about he himself and the apostles. Even if we, or an angel from heaven, 
should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And in verse 10, Paul gets right to the crux of the matter. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. All the false teachers in the world are, for whatever their reasons, trying to please man and not trying to please God. They are not servants of Christ, as Paul has pointed out. But there are others who claim to be servants of Christ, not just these who started these so-called Christian sects, who are yet preying on vulnerable Christians. And these people go by different names. One is the health and wealth gospel, or faith healers. These people make their healing services a spectacle. A Las Vegas type sideshow using, in fact, Las Vegas Magic Act deceptions. We just read about Simon the Magician. The people who are doing the faith healing, the slaying in the spirit, the, the big show with the full auditorium, are using the same Las Vegas Magic Act deceptions as pre-screening people for what their conditions are so that they can call them out of the audience and tell them that, uh, what, what their illness is. Their healings are partial, and their healings are temporary. Compare those to the biblical healings that we see Jesus and the apostles doing in the Bible. True biblical healings are total and immediate. These healings were not done for show or for personal gain of the healer. I think that when looking this up, there were 12 miraculous healings in the Old Testament. I'm going to just read you one of them today. And 27 in the New Testament. And I won't read you all of those. But in 2 Kings 5, 1 through 14, we have a, a healing. And you can see how lack of show there is. Because there was so much a lack of show that the sick man was distressed. That that war was not made of it. It's in first uh, in Second Kings five one through fourteen. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress. Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would give him, cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And, and the king of Syria said, Go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, Know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God 
to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the, and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, par, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. There was no drama. There was no spectacle. Elisha didn't even walk out of his house. Naaman came to his door, and Elisha said, go wash yourself seven times, because God doesn't need a spectacle to do miracles. And we'll be seeing that in the Acts where we're reading today. But this angered Naaman because it was too easy. God is compassionate. And biblical healings are always an act of compassion. Of all of Jesus' healings, only two were used for another greater purpose. Most of them were spur-of-the-moment compassionate healings. But two times, there was... Another underlying purpose. And when I looked it up, the first one I said, hold it. Lazarus wasn't one of the healings. Lazarus was a... Well, one of the two times was Lazarus. Jesus made sure that everyone knew that Lazarus was good and dead before he came to Lazarus after his death. And a... If you think as I was that uh, that wasn't a healing, a healing from death is probably the greatest healing there is. With that act, Jesus showed he was Lord of life. The other time is found in Matthew twelve five through 14. He then went, then went from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, which were the leaders of the, Jew, uh, the synagogue, said... And because they were testing Jesus and wanted to trap him, in fact, you can see it made them very angry. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Or how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him 
how to destroy him. Jesus uses this healing to point out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. They placed a sheep, a mere possession, over the life of a man and the well-being of a man. Jesus set the order straight. And the other 25 or so healings performed by Jesus, as recorded in the New Testament, were spur of the moment. As I said, sometimes Jesus healed with just a touch. He did that with uh, Jairus' daughter, the uh, leader of the synagogue. For one blind man, Jesus made a salve with dirt and his own spit and rubbed it on his eyes. And you might say, ooh, but uh, that was Jesus' spit. I'd go with it myself. In the case of the Roman centurion in Matthew 8, 8 through 13, Jesus never even saw the sick man, just as Elisha stood at the door. It says, when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, With no one in Israel have I found such faith. To the uh, centurion, Jesus says later on, Go, let it be done for, for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. The centurion knew what authority was and saw it immediately in Jesus. Indeed, Jesus was so thoroughly under the authority of God that he didn't always know when he was healing someone. This shows in the account of a mass healing by Jesus. Mark six fifty three through 56 says, When they had crossed over, they were on the uh, Sea of Galilee. They came to land at Gennesaret and, moor, uh, and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And whenever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many touched it were healed. They knew Jesus was a great miracle worker who could heal the sick. They believed that just touching his garments would cure them. In Luke six seventeen through 19, we have this, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. He healed not just the sick, but those with unclean spirits, the demon-possessed, which only God could do. In Mark 3, 7 through 10, just after healing the man with the withered hand in the synagogue of the, on the Sabbath, in front of the Pharisees, it says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and 
Idumean, from beyond the Jordan, from around Tyre and Sidon. When the Greek crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around to touch him. So in the large mass healings, we see no individual example of Jesus healing but for one. In Mark 5, 23-24, and it's the story of the daughter of Jairus. And it says, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made alive and uh, be made well and live. And he went with him. But it's not the healing of Jairus' daughter that I'm wanting to point you towards here. It's what happens on the way. It continues in, in chapter 5, verses 24b through 34. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. If you were in your period as a woman, you were ceremonially unclean. You could not go to the synagogue. You could not go to the temple. As long as you were bleeding, you were unclean. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and she was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. No, she had this condition for 12 years. She was ceremonially unclean. She could not join in the in the life of the community. She had suffered under the hands of many physicians. She had used all her money trying to be cured. And she was not only not getting better, she was getting worse. But she did know one thing. If she could just touch Jesus' garments, she would be made well. In our passage in Acts today... (laughs) Yeah, we're getting there 24 minutes into this sermon. In our passage in Acts today, we see how the apostles were treated after the healing they performed of the beggar at the Gate Beautiful in Solomon's portico. Now many signs and wonders. And this is, I should point out, this is a transitory passage. It is a clumsy passage. It is going from the healing at Solomon's portico to the arrest of the uh, apostles by the Jews once again. And so the reading here is difficult. And perhaps if I knew Greek, 
it would help, but I don't think so. It, it's, it's a little bit jumbled. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done by the, uh, among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Simon, uh, Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Signs and wonders were the regular routine of the life of the apostles. Though we're not told what those signs and wonders consisted of, healings were a hallmark of Christian works. And by what follows, it's fair to assume that that life among the apostles included miraculous healings. Verse 13 says, "None None of the people dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Now, there's a debate about who the none of the people would join them is referring to. Uh, I think it's fairly clear myself that it wasn't the priests who were going to arrest them. And from what follows, it's not people who would become believers. It's the run of the mill, and I don't mean that in a bad way, Jews of Jerusalem who were seeing the miraculous workings of the apostles, but still would not join with them. And if you think, well, hold it, how can that be? That They're seeing what's going right among them, all the healings. They know it's happening. And I'll show you why they know it's happening later. But remember, in fact, that these people saw Jesus' miraculous works. Remember that just a month, maybe a month and a half before this, these same people were waving palm branches as Jesus entered Jerusalem. And yet, even seeing the signs and wonders, none of the rest joined them. But they still, and that's my own own translation, held them in high esteem. Verse 14 says, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And that's why I'm saying here that These were just the -the run-of-the-mill Jews because people were still being added to the church. As I pointed out a week or two ago, they stopped telling how many people were added to the church because it was happening so quickly. And so regularly, people are being added to the church. So though the unbelievers kept their distance, those who did believe were added to the church more than ever before. And note that it says, both men and women. And that's stuck out to me. Why that language? So I went looking and I couldn't find anybody who commented on that line about men and women. After all, though in this time women were considered maybe not even second class citizens, their their testimony was not allowed in court, even so, they were always accounted front and center in Christ's close circle and the early church. So why both men and women? Uh, Maybe it's something so simple as to make sure we know that women were and are full and complete members of Christ's universal church. Maybe it's that simple. 
Despite differences between men and women's roles in the church, that's all it is. Not value, not worth, not godliness or holiness, but God-ordained role only. My niece was out from New Zealand this last week with a new baby, and if you know anything about New Zealand during the pandemic, they've been hostage for the last two years in New Zealand and have not been able to to get out. And, and my niece was holding her two-month-old daughter and saying, I love this age. Well, how would she know? She's only had the baby two months, you know. But uh, I agreed with her because I have three children. And I happen to know that that my wife loved the little babies, you know. The little babies, the little things that are spitting up and doing things that I don't want to clean up. And I said to my niece, who was cooing at her daughter, I, I said, give them to me when they're three years old, you know. When the kid grows up, they're three years old, we'll go out to the desert, we'll climb on some rocks, we'll throw things at things, you know. That's a father response to children. And the cooing at the baby is a mother response. Is a mother better than a father? No. Is a father better than a mother? No. We have roles. That is all I'm trying to express here with women and men in the Christian church. It's role. It's not worth. It's not better. It's not worse. Me standing up here and preaching does not mean that the ministry gets done. It's the people who join with us, men and women, that are the ministry of a church. Verses 14 through 15 reads, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, we just read that, multitudes of both men and women, so that even, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Like I say, the passage is a little bit convoluted, and what verse 15 has to do with verse 14 is not clear. Perhaps, like I say, it was more so in the original Greek, but we're not going there. However, this whole passage we're reading today is taking us from the events in Solomon's portico to the apostles being arrested yet again. Whether or not verses 14 and 15 are a literary device to the next section in Acts, verse 15 nevertheless shows us a direct link from Jesus' healing ministry to the signs and wonders performed by the apostles and how it was received by the citizens of Jerusalem. Just as the crowds flocked to Jesus, if only to touch the hem of his garments, it says here that they were carrying cots and mattresses into the streets that Peter's shadow might cross over them and they be healed. It does not say here that they were healed from this, and yet, and because I, I do not want to say something that Scripture does not say, it does not say that they were healed, but but Peter's shadow being brought up this way makes me direct you to the very next sentence in this passage. Verse 16 says, The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And I would submit that his shadow 
his touch was healing everybody because travel in those days was not easy. They didn't get in their Prius because gas was expensive. And drive, they had to carry people. Those afflicted with illnesses had to be carried from the towns around Jerusalem into the city to get to Peter. If they were not being healed, people would not have been coming. This is a true faith healing ministry. Uh, Of note should be that this was not ordinary Christians doing this healing. Okay? This was apostolic healing only. And it ended with the end of the apostolic era. That does not mean that God does not heal today because we do know that he does. During this pandemic, um, just about everybody in this church at one time or another has fallen sick and actually it was mostly later. Some extremely poorly. We just had a man come out of the hospital last week that's been in since just after Thanksgiving and uh, was not expected to live. But healing today is done by God's will through the prayers of his people. We do not go out and have healing, rent an auditorium and have a healing service. We do it one-on-one. I was reading something about the anointing of oil on on the head. Should it still be done? And I'm not against it. And it says to do it. So, uh... And in this way, we we also have our own faith healing ministries, but not the kind that the apostles had. Anyone who claims to be a faith healer today is a charlatan preying on those poor poor and sick among us. Those Pentecostal and charismatic types hyping the so-called health and prosperity gospel who say that God doesn't want us to be poor and sick who moreover say it's a sin to be poor and sick should talk to the Apostle Paul who prayed for his relief from illness which was not granted and if you think I'm hard on false teachers and so called Christian sects it's it's because I am I had a uh, gaggle of Mormon missionaries at my door not long ago and I, I told them my, they were wasting their time I could not be converted to Mormonism because I was a Christian and they said to me well we're Christians they said it says right in our name it says Jesus Christ right in our name and they said that to my face we're Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints and I said I've had this problem with uh, if you've ever listened to the Dennis Prager show he takes any Christian and says that they're a Christian at face value. If you're a Mormon, you're a Christian. If you're a Jehovah's Witness, you're a Christian. Uh, and just this last week, somebody said to him, because he's an observant Jew, said to him on his show, and I missed the call. I heard the follow-up, but I missed the call. And somebody said, Dennis, just because somebody talks about God doesn't mean they're talking about the God you're talking about. It is not necessarily your God. And Dennis Prager was thunderstruck. It was the most revolutionary thing that he had ever heard. And how long have we been talking about that in Christian churches? That not everybody who calls himself a Christian is talking about Jesus Christ. That they're talking about some other person they put into it. And I happen to know 
that the Jesus Christ of Mormonism is not Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ, though a man, was eternally God. But the Mormon uh, Jesus was a man and became a God. Uh, He's the spirit brother of Lucifer, whatever that means. I happen to know that that's not true about Jesus Christ. And so I quoted them, what I quoted earlier uh, to you, uh, Galatians 1, 6 through 9. If anybody comes preaching another gospel, let them be anathema. I've got a closing anecdote. My great-grandmother Johnson, who was in my Methodist church, by the way, and who was a great woman of God, who never joined the Methodist church, she was always a Presbyterian, just to let you know, died when she was 77. And my grandfather married a friend from his youth a few years later. She was a um, Christian scientist, and she was very vocal about it. She was also blessed with really good health, which is really annoying to those of us who, you know, would like to make a point about false religions. She lived to be 92 or 93. But her only daughter developed cancer in her late 60s or early 70s. And um, obviously to my grandfather's wife, it was because she lacked faith. Because if you're a Christian scientist and you get sick, you lack faith. And her daughter developed cancer to her because she lacked faith. And as her daughter was dying, this woman never went to see her. Never went to see her daughter who was dying cancer. Because, she said, her daughter chose to die. Now, of course, this lady herself, just like all the faith healers and all of the health and wealth gospel people, got sick just a couple years later and died. Did she not have faith? Did she choose to die? Of course, none of us were that cruel to ask her that question that she posed to her own daughter. It is appointed once for man to die. In John 21, the Apostle John himself addresses the rumor that he, the most beloved disciple of Jesus, would not die. And the thing that amuses me about this is that it was a rumor in the church. You know, we talk about contemporary churches and rumors that go around. And, and here, here the Apostle John is dealing with a rumor about himself. In fact, if you've ever seen um, Indiana Jones and the Quest for the Grail, whatever it's called, the end plot is that the Apostle John is still there, uh, at the grail because he was never he never died but in John 21:18 Jesus says truly truly I say to you when you were young and he's saying this to Peter he says when you were young you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted but when you are old you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go Parentheses. This he said to show by what kind of death that he, Peter, was to glorify God. 
And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now Peter sees John following behind Jesus and Peter. And says to Jesus, what about him? You know, you've just told me how I'm going to die. What about him? And Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the spray, and so this is John continuing. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? And John did die. He died old and of natural causes, but he did die. This is man's lot. Once to die and then the judgment. But for the Christians, the good news is found in John 6.47, where he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I always stress has. Because when we die, we will go from life to life everlasting. He who believes has eternal life. Let's close in prayer.